This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott. Many parents are increasingly startled and unnerved and frightened, frankly, at how today's media and marketers and manufacturers are sexualizing and stereotyping girls at younger and younger ages. Just think of all the all-pink aisles and toy stores and the Halloween costumes that are just unbelievably sexy in in tween sizes and, and grade school sizes. But we feel pretty powerless to do anything about it. And then along comes Melissa Wardy, who is a mother of two, and she was frustrated, and she pretty much had enough, and she's going to be our guest on this part of today's show. She decided to channel her frustration into activism. She created a website where she was selling T-shirts with girl-positive messages, and she started blogging and swapping parenting strategies with families all over the world, and she began writing letters to corporate offenders, and she worked with parents through workshops and social media. Her goal in all this, well, it's pretty much the same as our goal for this part of today's show, to give parents the tools that they need to change and limit and challenge the media that their daughters are confronted with every day. So if you're concerned about how to raise a confident and empowered girl in today's hypersexual culture, you're not going to want to miss this interview. We'll start talking about some tips and tools and facts that you're going to need to guide girls successfully through girlhood, and we'll show you how to take a stance and start redefining girlhood for your daughters and everybody else's daughters as well. You must be your fairy godmother. (laughs) Yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under 4 foot 9 need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that 4 foot 9 is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. Oh, thank you. For more information, visit BoosterSeat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Melissa Atkins-Wardy, who's the author of Redefining Girly, How Parents Can Fight the Stereotyping and Sexualizing of Girlhood from Birth to Tween. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I mentioned before we went in the air, I've got three daughters, and I, I struggle with a lot of these things having to do with messages that are sent to girls because I think it's it's good for them to see the world as as though it's someplace that they can go anywhere they want to and do everything they want. But I s- unfortunately see, and I'm kind of curious how you feel about this, that some of the girl power messages, I think, are making girls think of themselves as victims. And there's got to be something in between the empowerment message and the you're a victim message. How How do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, I agree with that. And, I, and it's hard because, you know, as I identify as a feminist, and so... I'm, I'm all about empowering girls and women, but I very much agree with you that I think when we're teaching our girls, you know, like, oh, honey, you can be whatever you want to be, like, we don't necessarily say those things to our sons, and so that gives our girls pause, and they think, well, why, why couldn't I be anything I want to be? So I think, um, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to girl power, because then that would suggest that girls are weak and need to be empowered. Um, right. Right. So I think, you know, when we're talking about, you know, especially girls in the United States, I think that um, if we focus on building a personal brand for her, 
we kind of escape some of that stuff that we were talking about. So, um, you know, in that starts, it can start very, very early with a family. But, you know, a family really investing in her and, and, and giving her the messages and experiences so that she knows intrinsically who she is and, and her confidence level is high and she knows where her place is in this world so that she's not afraid to venture out and experience new things and that she'll discover for herself that she can be anything you know, that she puts her mind to, yeah. um, as opposed to us telling her and coaching her along. Mm-hmm. I think there's the other part of that, which is that I think the girls need to learn that they can accomplish what they want to accomplish on their own steam, that they don't have to do it stepping on top of somebody else. And, and what I mean by that, you say, I see a lot of, of girls rule, boys drool kinds of things, yeah. or, you know, yeah. it's like that, it just seems to me to be completely unnecessary to yeah, do that and counterproductive. Yeah. It's completely counterproductive. I, I agree with that completely. I am also raising a son, and so I, I don't give my daughter those messages at all that, you know, that girls are better than boys or boys are dumb. And, and I actually, within the parenting of my son, have come to realize that I kind of used to be very sexist and, and hold a lot of gender stereotypes for boys and men that I've realized I, I, you know, I, I was embarrassed by, and I really had to retrain <laughs> myself and just, you know, little, I grew up with, you know, it was my mom and my dad and my two younger brothers. There'd be, you know, times where they're in the family room watching football and my mom would make some quip about, you know, oh, they're, they're in their cave or they're, you know, whatever, or go throw some food at the beast, stuff like that. And it was just kind of joking, but, you know, I just realized that, that it, it, there was sort of like a putting down of boys and not having a high expectation of them. And so, um, we we try to at our house, you know, it's my husband and I, my son and my daughter, and so we try to do a lot of things where it's not boys versus girls or making fun of the boys and things like that, um, because there is a lot of um, in in this whole girl power movement, um, there is some of that suggestion that that boys are less than and yeah. girls are better, yeah. and and that's not the case. It's it's what we're especially you know with redefining girly and my business Pixel Pals and Ball Cat Buddies. What I'm really trying to strive for is equality as opposed to one gender over the other or just looking at, you know, just empowering girls. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to make both sides of the, the coin even. And I think and I'm, I'm going to presume to to put words in your mouth that, that equality doesn't always mean exactly the same. That right, girls right. and boys can have different needs or different wants and desires and forcing them or pushing them too hard in one direction is not any good for them either. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, we want we want our boys to grow up to be compassionate and affectionate and emotionally intelligent. But if you have a son who has no interest in playing with toy kitchens or baby dolls, you're not going to accomplish those things by forcing that on him. And same with girls. You know, we want them, I talk about this a lot in my work about, I want girls to take up space. And that means I want them to be strong and confident in their bodies and, and not be focused on being tiny and small but on, you know, not being afraid to tear it up on the basketball court or, you know, in the gymnastics floor and or being this amazing dancer who who really pushes her body, you know, to to discover these new um, talents or new moves she can do. And so um, I think that when we give those messages, we just we have to it, it comes from a good place, but we really have to dig down deep and understand what it is we're saying. Yeah, so a lot of the messages that you're talking about are are aimed at girls or the, the changing of the messages. But I'm kind of curious. Some of my favorite studies in the world, you probably have come across these things, the chondries. They're uh, 
a, a husband and wife team, and they did these wonderful experiments where they had a baby that the, you could see through a, a window <clears throat> or through a one-way win, one way mirror. So the baby's in there playing, and they march a group of people through, and they say, look at that little boy. What do you think? And then they'll talk about how big and strong and sturdy and strapping the little boy is, and he's you know maybe a, a year and a half old. And then they take those people out, and they march another group of people in, looking at the same baby, and they say, what do you think about that girl? And so they talk about how sweet and petite and, and, and right. wonderful she is. So, I mean, so you have these things. So you're going to tell girls that, you know, that they can do whatever they want, but just to sort of use that as a, the, the ultimate goal, that they can have the kind of life that they'd like to have on their own terms. But mm-hmm. at the other, the other side, we go into parenting or not even parenting. I mean, anybody, you should think, what, what's the first question that anybody asks when they heard somebody has a baby? Is boy or girl? Because right. we need right. to know how to respond. So right. you've got to be working on the adults as well to help them to overcome the natural kinds of stereotyping that, that we do in, in a perfectly harmless, well, I don't want to say harmless, but in well-meaning kinds of ways. Right. You know, I mean, that's like what I was describing earlier about the stereotypes I held. I mean, we, we're raised in a culture that's very binary when it comes to gender. And so it's very, you know, if, if, you're, if you're living somewhere and the air smells, you don't always smell it because it's there every day. And right. so you, you just don't recognize it. And, and I think that um, what we need to do is whether you're you know, a parent, we're speaking about children, or just adults interacting with each other, is to not see someone for their gender, but to see someone for their person. Um, because most people that I know in life don't fit into specific gender boxes that the marketers or even the cultural gender stereotypes would want us to judge people by. There's, you know... My friends and, and my family members, they're all across the board with interests and likes and, and experiences. And so I think that when we start seeing people as people as opposed to a gender, we can kind of get away from that. And, um, you know, like with my kids and I, when we're out shopping, if we come across a baby, we don't really talk about like, oh, he's so cute or, you know, oh, he's a heartbreaker or she's so beautiful. We just kind of look at the baby and like how chubby they are. And one of my kids will always say, oh, I want to <laughs> eat that baby. And it's more about just appreciating that I'm as this fun little person because it doesn't really matter if they're a boy or girl. And, you know, if we think about, you know, specifically in like the first four years of life, five years of life, boys or girls have to learn the exact same things about this world and about being a human and a family member. And, and so it really doesn't have anything to do with gender. And certainly the different children will have different preferences. And, you know, I have a niece who's very much, you know, is, is into the – jewelry and, and, and fairies and, and fancy dresses. Um, and my daughter at that age was into giant squids and dinosaurs. And it was more about personality. Um, and I think that when we really tap into kids' personalities, um, the gender stereotypes, they kind of fall away because then we see that these kids are just soaking up everything we give them about the world. And it's really fun to rediscover things through their eyes. Absolutely. All right, so let's jump in to mm-hmm. some some of the book. We've sort of been talking theoretically, and it's, it's been great. But talk about what you mean by the whole concept of redefining girly. Just Right. So redefining girly means I want people to recognize that there are many ways to be a girl. And so there's, it's, it's not about being anti-pink, anti-princess, anti-feminine. It's about being anti-limitation. And so the pink princess feminine... That's all part of it, but so is sports and science and, and outdoors and, and the fact that if a girl is playing basketball or climbing a tree, she's not being a tomboy, she's being a girl. And that 
within that, we recognize that our girls are smart, daring, and adventurous. They're born that way, and we really want to bring those talents out and those experiences out in their girlhood so that instead of having to tell them, you can be anything you want to be, she knows that, right? We don't have to tell her that because right. she knows that. Right. And and so that's what I'm trying to accomplish with the book is, is to get people to change the way they're talking to girls, they're shopping for girls, the media they're choosing for girls, and to really use that the litmus test of is this teaching her to be smart, daring, and adventurous? Um, and not, I mean, certainly not everything has to fall into that category. If you want to do an afternoon of Tinkerbell movies, I don't think that's going to damage your daughter at all. <laughs> but Probably I think not. that, it, no, yeah. it's about, it's about balance. Just, and I, you know, I related a lot to right. food and because parents, I think, you know, my generation of parents is very much aware of, of what we're feeding our children. And so a lot of parents practice the rainbow plate where you have foods and a rainbow and then you get all the nutrients you need. Right. And so I, I want parents to think that same way with toys and media about having, you know, diversity and a rainbow of colors um, and just a nice spread of themes and, right. and interests. And then let your child choose and pick their way and let them show you who they are. Melissa atkins Wardy is the author of Redefining Girly, How Parents Can Fight the Stereotyping and Sexualizing of Girlhood from Birth to Tween. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking with Melissa. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Melissa Atkins-Wardy, who's the author of Redefining Girly, How Parents Can Fight the Stereotyping and Sexualizing of Girlhood from Birth to Tween. You talk about how redefining girly starts before birth. What do you mean by that? When I was pregnant with my daughter, um, we didn't know if she was a boy or a girl. And I think it's really important because what parents don't realize is when you go into that, that ultrasound and it's a really special moment for that couple or for that mom, and you, what you're finding out is the sex of the baby, and that doesn't always align with gender expression. So, you know, when, when families find out and they say, oh, they announce, oh, I'm having a girl, and, and then the baby shower is pink and all the gifts are pink, or they have to specifically request no pink, everything about that child becomes about her gender and, and what we expect her to express it as. But she may come out of that womb and be the most beautiful little girl you've ever seen and grow up having no interest in brushing her hair or wearing dresses and only want to wear white t-shirts and blue jeans and play hockey. And the thing is, that's okay because she is being herself and she's being a girl by doing those things. And um, I think it's, you know, true for boys. If when You know, we have our little boys and, you know, grandpa or uncle will say, I can't wait to get him his first baseball glove or whatever. Well, he may only be interested in ballet. And, you know, I don't think kids have singular interests, but you kind of know what I mean. I'm sort of yeah, sure, sure. the far stereotypes is sort of. And so um, I think that we can start before birth by just celebrating the child and really think about everything there is to learn and experience in childhood and what a magical, special time that is. Um, and I've had some friends use really clever ways to announce that they are having a girl to kind of set that tone, you know, specific to the study that you mentioned, they'll, instead of saying our world's about to turn pink or we're having a new little princess that then draws out all of those stereotypes, sure. yeah. you know, one friend said, you know, there's a new sheriff in town and she means business. 
and then announced her her daughter's you know birth announcements with the name and the date and weight and all that stuff. And and the thing was that the um, she did that on Facebook, and all of the comments underneath that were all about what this you know amazing girl she's going to grow up to be and how smart she is. And they set the tone for how they wanted people to relate to their, their daughter. And you know, I had another friend do the same when she was pregnant and found out she was having a girl. Uh, she announced it by saying the girl power in this house is about to double. And again, it was that they were setting the tone for how they wanted their daughters to be treated and respected by their friends and family. And, you know, and then when your child arrives, it's a lot about just making your house a really fun space for learning. Mm -hmm. And little girls need to learn how to drive cars and roll balls and build blocks just as much as little boys do. Um, Because we're, you know, all of these skills in childhood, um, it's, you know, play is the work of the child. And so they need to develop all these same, you know, growth and, and development and cognitive milestones um, so we, we need to pick toys that act as brain food and, and, and build them up that way. All right. You've got another chapter right after this one about getting family and friends on board. And you did mention, if you think so, I can't wait to get him his first baseball glove. I've heard um, women who've got three sons or no, no daughters about how they wish they could have a girl so they could take her and get her nails done mm-hmm. or, or, you know, dress her in frilly things. Mm-hmm. How do you... Get past that. I mean, we talked about that a little bit before, but I'm ju- it just keeps coming up of, as, okay, we can tell the girls that they can do what they what whatever they'd like to do, but there's so much of this stuff going on that's mm-hmm. just so hard, I think, to overcome. I mean, I, I, I got to say, is, you know, honestly about this thing, I've, I mentioned to you, I've got three daughters. Everybody listening to the show knows I've got three daughters. I talk about them all the time. The older two had absolutely zero interest in anything sports. I was delighted when they started tearing the heads off their Barbies. I thought I had kind of reached some great milestone. But and but my third one was a jock, and so I finally got to coach a softball team. And in in some ways, I think that the your your identity as a parent is tied up in your children's identity, or maybe even their their gender identity. Mm-hmm. How do you get past that? It's hard. Yeah, I know it's hard. So the first part of your question, like, how do we relate and deal with family members who may not uh, necessarily adopt our idea of gender inclusiveness of childhood. So, you know, what I talk about in my book is that family, you know, in my opinion, family is one of the most important things in the world. And whether that's, you know, your family by birth or, you know, the, the family you've developed through friends because maybe your birth family turned out to be not great. So whoever that, that nucleus of people is around your child you know, you want them to understand that you're building a personal brand for your daughter and that you are going to raise her in a specific way so that she goes into this world confident and is, you know, has some vaccination against these very toxic cultural messages. And because no matter what her interests are, you know, what type of personality she has, every girl gets hit with these messages and they're impacted by them. And so we're trying to inoculate them, you know, against those. And so... You can start with, um, you know, if if the friend says, oh, like, you know, to get her nails done or whatever, and, you know, I, I can't wait to take her for her first pedicure, you know, say that would be so great. Maybe we can do, you know, a day of hiking or swimming first, and then that could be our reward, you know, as we kind of let our muscles relax. And, um, you know, it's just kind of countering the messages all the time, and um, it, it's sort of similar to, uh, you know, just kind of reminding someone to say the please and thank yous. Mm-hmm. It's just about using good manners and respecting the way a family wants to raise their child. 
Um, and there's times where you have to come down a little harder and, uh, and, and you know, it's, it, you don't want to break these relationships because they're so important for your child. Right. But at the same time, if somebody's really toxic, you've got to sit down and, and, just, and have, you know, a come-to-truth meeting with them and say, right. look, yeah. there's a couple things you're, you know, introducing into my home uh, that, that aren't appropriate. And an easy way to do this, um, it went, you know, a way that I talk to my community is if you were to replace the, the sexist stereotypes, the gender stereotypes with racial stereotypes, People would, I think, bristle. Like, that's oh, yes. not Absolutely. very accepted in our society anymore. At least not, not, um, you know, out in the open. Right. Certainly, racism is still a part of our society. But, but when when you do it that way, people kind of understand better. So, like, if you're trying to talk to your aunt about shopping for her niece, your daughter, in both both aisles, the pink and blue aisles, and there's really no such thing as girl and boy toys, and she's like, no, 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 what are you talking about? You know, say to her. Well, you know, you know, Aunt Sue, if if the toy aisles were divided for white kids and black kids, how would that make you feel? And it's the same thing for boys and girls. Hmm. And, and sometimes that helps to open people's eyes. Yeah. And you know, and I think it's just I think it's approaching it with respect. And I'm a big fan of meeting people where they're at, and then trying to meet in the middle. Right. So right. you know, and and the other thing too is we kind of have to remember generationally, for Aunt Sue who might be in her 60s, Barbie was groundbreaking at the time because at sure. that time you know, women weren't hired by NASA, and she grew up with her astronaut Barbie. So she may have fond memories mm-hmm. of toys, but I think, you know, people, if you haven't been in a toy aisle lately, I strongly suggest you walk down one. Um, well, it can you, be a pretty horrifying experience. Well, it is. I mean, you know, I, a, I, do, yeah. uh, I do a lot of, lot of toy reviews, and I'm stunned sometimes at the, I don't know, there, there's probably not a better word to describe the way some of the, these, these dolls are dressed, and it's, it's sort of a slutty way. I mean, just the the revealing stuff, and I'm not a prude by any means, but it just seems to be sending a, a horrible right. message that they right. have to have tiny little dresses and incredibly high heels, and you know, then you see the the beauty pageants or something for the five year olds, and they're gyrating their hips, and it's mm-hmm. just seems just just really it's creepy. Yeah. So everything that you're seeing, the term for that is sexualization. Because um, right, because like slutty is a judgment that we put on someone because we perceive to know their sexual history. So what, what I try to teach people is to look at that is that what you're seeing, the word for that is sexualization, and that it's the the imposition of concepts of adult sexuality into items for children. Right, and where they don't these, belong. Right, and these these dolls, you're absolutely right. They they do look like sex workers, and I have actually for my book. I took a bunch of those dolls down, and I, I met with some um, women who are strippers, and I took them out for breakfast, and we talked about this. And they were, I mean, I was watching their heads explode over our pancakes and coffee as they were like, are you serious people buy this stuff for their kids? They're like, I don't even wear this in the club. And, and it, I mean, it was, it was shocking because here are women who literally, you know, sell their body as part of the sex trade, and they were, they were like, this is insane. And, and a good point they made was that most of these toys are being bought by women who, who have other options and other choices than to do that. Yeah. And like we're, we're yeah. opting into the self-objectification. Melissa Atkins-Wardy is the author of Redefining Girly, How Parents Can Fight the Stereotyping and Sexualizing of Girlhood from Birth to Tween. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thank you so much for having me.
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment with Samantha Fuse. Sam, you know, we, we had not all that long ago Black Friday, and then there's the Christmas holidays, and then there's, of course, the people who miss the deadlines, and they try to get things late, and there's global warming, so people don't go outside because it's too hot, or they don't go outside because it's too cold. So let's talk about some toys that are just just because... Yeah, well, I don't know about you, but we're cold right now. We're not going outside a whole heck of a lot. Maybe, you know, taking a walk, hitting the park. We're not, we're not doing much outside right now, building a snowman. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, having, we're doing mostly indoor play at the moment. And so those long hours, can they can be kind of challenging sometimes, especially they if you can. don't really want to park your child in front of a screen. Yeah, I'm not really a screen kind of parent. I, he's allowed to watch a half hour a day of whatever. But um, and if I'm really desperate, it will be an hour. But that's on a rare occasion. Um, but there's there's a lot of fun stuff out there. And if you run out of Christmas toys, then you can always use those lovely gift cards and go shopping. You know, you mentioned you're not allowed to watch any more than a half an hour a day. But how did the the Peter Rabbit DVD fit in with that? Does that count as part of the half hour? Or is that absolutely? You're measuring? He gets a half hour of screen time a day, whether okay. he chooses to do it on a game system. Like um, like his little Nintendo handheld, um, or whether he wants to do it on his tablet or the television, whatever he's watching, he gets a half hour. But Peter Rabbit's actually really good for that because they're using the segments from the TV show, so he can watch it in increments. And the segments actually aren't that long. How how is it? Are they kind of reading the stories, or are they making new stories with the same characters? I, I have to confess, my my kids are are older than Peter yeah, Rabbit. Yeah, your a little older than my fella. Yeah. Um, it is the classic Beatrix Potter tales. Um, but they're updated. They're still wearing their, their you know, old-fashioned clothes, and it's still the same storyline, but they definitely have new takes on them. The characters are all the same or in the same vein. Okay, so they're still Mr. McGregor, and they're still running around. And Absolutely, and Peter's, Peter's still causing trouble. <laughs> he's having chamomile tea when he, when he gets his stomach upset and all that stuff. Absolutely. It's exactly what we remember from when you were a kid. It just got like a new modern take on it. And Peter Abbott's like a fun, wholesome, I don't have to worry about him watching it and, you know, karate chopping somebody later because he saw some nonsense on it. And as you know, I'm a traveler, and the exception I have always for my half-hour screen time rule is traveling. We're on a long car ah. trip, we're in the plane, we're in the airport, uh, he can watch as much as he wants because he's quiet, he's not driving other passengers crazy. So that's a great thing for us to bring with us as well. So he's not going to go karate chopping with, with Peter Rabbit, but no. he may if you start bringing out those Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I cannot believe that they keep going strong after <laughs> decades. Well, it's, it's definitely a resurgence. My brothers used to love those back in the 80s. Yeah, my older kids loved them too, and then I thought, okay, that's the end of that. You know, they're, they're gone. But they're back, or maybe they just have never left. Yeah, I think those are just kind of things that come back in, in waves. They never really go away. They just come back really strong every so often. This is one of those every so often. They're definitely back full force right now. Um, and this is not something I would recommend for traveling in a plane with. <laughs> um, it's remote control, so it moves around. It's got a rapid-fire sewer cover cannons. Um, it's definitely not a travel toy, but it's definitely something that will kill time in the house. Um, let them loose in the kitchen with it, someplace with like a nice, you know, laminate floor, maybe not so much on carpeting. It's a little, little difficult on carpeting, but they have a great time and it's not super noisy. You're not going to go crazy with it. And he really, he really enjoys it. There's spaces for them to go inside. They can hang on the outside. It's really enjoyable. And it's kind of retro. 
Yeah, it is kind of retro. And you know they, what? They I, are what, different. They're, they're, they're definitely not the Ninja Turtles I played with in the 80s. Oh, no, no. And you know what sort of struck me as retro? When I saw the, the pictures and then I saw the videos of the Disco Robo guys, <laughs> they look very much, if you look at them quickly, they look like the, the Power Rangers from that all that long ago. No, I oh, don't yes. know about that. They have the same kind of colors, and the, they look like they're fighting and, and stuff. But to, well, um, they have colors. They do have colors, <laughs> and I'll give you colors. All right. Well, just <laughs> look at people, people, like Power Rangers. People will go to the website. They'll look at the picture, and then they can write in and say whether they look like the Power Rangers. That but, sounds like a good idea. All right. But so. they also don't fight. They dance. Um, they, they have special moves, and you can plug them into either a little radio thing that they can come with, or you can customize their dance moves. How does that work? I mean, they, they hear the music somehow, and then they move in time to the music, or is, is it a random thing? Can it's you get one who just doesn't dance well? Um, so if you're playing music that's got, like, a really, like, thumping beat, they, they move on every thump. Um, it was really funny to hear them. I, I really like swing music. It was really funny to watch it dance swing music. Um, it's obviously not going to, like, gyrate or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a robot. It's got robot-like movements. Um, but it moves its hands around, it moves its head around, it, it shakes its, its booty, um, <laughs> and it makes funny faces, which is my son's favorite part. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's low-tech. It's not like um, it's not like something you'd see on TV, like in some high-tech movie or something like that. It's definitely a silly little robot that does silly little dance moves and makes funny faces, but my kid gets a huge kick out of it. So do you ever get one that's kind of a wallflower that just wants to tap his foot instead of dancing? <laughs> I've only ever seen two. The one that <laughs> we have and the one that I saw at Toy Fair. Um, and the one at Toy Fair was crazy. It was, it was loud at Toy Fair, so it was very active. Um, and the one we have is pretty active as well, but you need to have the bass line. Quiet music won't work. Taking it too far away from a radio won't work. So it needs to be yeah. right next to the speaker yeah. or you need to have surround sound on. So there's something that you wouldn't think of as necessarily a toy, but I think smart people have been making teeth toothbrushing into some sort of a game for kind of a long time. And the folks at Pillow Pets, we, we've talked a lot about their various various products you love over the years. Pets. I do, I do. But they they came out with I hadn't heard of this with brush pets. Where t- talk about that? It just looks like kind of a cool thing and and, and a, f- a fun thing that a child would really be interested in engaging with. My son brushes his teeth constantly he, he's run the head off of his one i had to get him a new head um which you know it's a good problem to have <laughs> you're gonna have problems yeah, we all need, um, need a new head every once in a while yeah. yeah you know you gotta do what you gotta do but he um you push the little button on its back and if you look on the website you can see there's a little red spot below its head like kind of where its neck would be um ours is a puppy and if you pu- push its back it'll uh, play music for you because it's time to brush and it sings you a song, and it plays music, and it barks at you, and is in general really annoying, but, you know, kids love that. Um, <laughs> and it lets you know how long you need to brush for it, and it reminds you, brush the back, brush the front. Every so often gives you a little prompt to, you know, not just leave it where it is. And um, when it's done, you can leave it in this little doggy house. You plug the, it's almost like a plug, like an outlet. You flip it open, you put it in there, and you just snap it shut. It's very, uh, and it's a dog house to go with the dog, which I think is really cute. You can get a lot of other reviews of these products and lots of other products at parentsatplay.com. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brandt. Bullying is not kids being kids. It's not about good homes or bad homes. It's not a normal part of growing up. 
I shouldn't be afraid to get on the school bus. To turn on my computer. Message. A walk to my locker. Did you know that a bully will stop his or her behavior in 10 seconds when their peers speak up? Use your voice. Hey, leave him alone. We have the power to stop bullying. Find out more at bullying.org. Where you're not alone. Hello and welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brock. For a lot of people, trying to get pregnant can be, well, kind of a trying experience. You've probably already attempted every single trick that you know that's supposed to help you get pregnant. And you've heard all the suggestions from all those well-meaning friends who have kids and the family members who have kids, and nothing's working. And friends and family keep asking if you had any luck, and the answer still the same. What they want to know and what you want to know is, are you infertile? Now, the word itself, infertility, is a bit of a loaded term. It's actually a medical condition, but despite what you may have heard, it's actually a condition that affects both men and women equally. It's so common that it affects more than 100 million people worldwide, and in this country, it's a concern as well. It affects at least 7 million. But a lot of experts are suggesting that that number could actually be even triple that, so up to 21 million people. So here's the thing. If you've been trying to get pregnant for more than a year without any luck, you need to have a fertility evaluation. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking about infertility. And while we're not going to be able to give you that fertility evaluation, by the end of the show, you're going to know an awful lot more about infertility and fertility than you used to. We're going to be debunking a lot of the myths about fertility. We're going to talk about some of the advances in technology that are absolutely amazing and some lifestyle changes that you can make that can go a long way towards increasing the chances that you're going to be able to achieve the results that you want. I'm Armin Brott. All that and a lot more is coming up when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of the show is Jennifer Hannon, who's the co-author of What to Do When You Can't Get Pregnant, The Complete Guide to All the Options for Couples Facing Fertility Issues. That's a pretty comprehensive title. Jennifer, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's talk about why is this an important topic now? There seems to be so much going on. I mean, there's different technologies and different approaches, and everybody's having twins and triplets, and so why the the focus on fertility issues now? Well, I think everyone has had problems for a while for fertility. That's not new. What's new is we know more now. Okay. And we know we know more about the causes. We know more about the causes. We know more about the treatments. We know more about how, what to do so that you can get pregnant faster. Okay. So it did, not all that long ago, it was pretty much looked at as a female thing. It was. it was. You know, and now we're kind of disco- discovering that it's about... What, 40, 40? Exactly. And then 20 is just unexplained. Exactly, because about one in six American couples have problems with fertility, you know, within the year of trying. So that's kind of the definition. I was just going to ask you to define infertility. Mm-hmm. So that's basically not being able to get pregnant right. within a year of, of starting the whole yeah, process. Yeah, and I would say if you're in your upper 20s or early 30s and you haven't been able to get pregnant within a year, you should see somebody, whether it's your, your, your uh, regular doctor that you trust or your OB-GYN who you trust. Or if you're a man and you don't want to see a fertility doctor, you can see a urologist. Or you can see a uh, fertility specialist like Dr. Potter with HRC Fertility. Okay. And do you find that there's 
technical approaches that are more successful or that lifestyle issues are more successful? How how do the, those things work into it? Because I know there's, there's both. I mean, there's right. taking care of yourself and preconception and things like that, which we'll talk about. But Right. I, th- I think it's a combination, actually. I've, t- I've interviewed lots of couples, and some um, got pregnant the first time. Others, it took multiple times. Some did acupuncture. Some followed a certain diet. Um, so I really think it's different for everybody. But I would say that uh, what we worry about most is polar extremes, people that um, are too overweight. And when I mean too overweight, I mean they have a basal, uh, it's called a BMI. It's a basal um, metabolic index of, uh, I mean, you can look it up online. 30 just, something. Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you're five foot and you weigh over 200, <laughs> you're going to be obese, okay? So if you're, if you're too big or you're too thin, like you're athletic and you, uh, you work out all the time, your, your body fat's going to be too low to get pregnant. So you really want to make sure you're sort of in the middle. Well, this has nothing to do with anything, I guess. But the, I just, as you said, that five foot and, and weighing two hundred yeah. pounds. There's a woman yeah. that I knew who was about those those dimensions, right? And she had horrible cramps in her stomach, and she mm-hmm. went to the hospital emergency room to, for, to she thought was an appendectomy, and she gave birth to a baby. She didn't even know she was pregnant. Yes. So, so obviously, yeah. being overweight can cause it, all yes. sorts of problems yes. on both sides. And being underweight too. I mean, you may not get pregnant if you're. You may not even have periods if you're a woman and you're severely underweight. Right. You can skip right. periods. So. So let's talk about some of the things that you guys are advising men to do. We'll start okay. with men okay. who who are having difficulties. You know, are, are there, there's the sort of the stereotypical stuff. You stay out of hot tubs. You mm-hmm. wear looser fitting underwear. Right. To try not to be a long distance trucker and yeah. have sitting on <laughs> sitting on hot seats and things like that. Yeah. What else goes on there? What's that? What else? Okay. So um, you know, some of it is 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 of course. Um, I would say psychological, maybe not blaming your spouse, because a lot of times as, as humans, we get into the blaming game and we want to yeah. blame each other for, for not getting pregnant, but that doesn't fix the problem. So, you know, some of the some of the things you can do would be to um, there's a drug called Civita. You can take that and, and that helps your increase your fertility. That's one thing for you men, do for men. Uh-huh. Oh, OK. Yeah. For women. I mean, um, basically, it's sort of the same. It's it's probably hormonal. It's also stress relief. You can do acupuncture. You can and, and Dr. Potter is a huge proponent of acupuncture. You can do massage therapy. I mean, we we list all the um, complementary complementary therapies you can do along with IVF, or whether it's you're going through Clomid or whether you're doing some kind of IUI. You know, there's lots of different treatments, obviously, for fertility. So IVF is just in, in, in vitro fertilization is just one of them. And stress, I mean, I'm sure that everybody kind of thinks about this or they have heard stories like this. The stress has got to be a huge thing because, yes. I mean, you, you always hear about people who have been infertile for years and they mm-hmm. finally just gave up on the whole thing and then, boom, they get pregnant again. Yes, and I've interviewed people like that. I've interviewed a couple. In fact, they've gone through it six times, and then the sixth time finally worked with Dr. Potter because they had a different doctor before. And then uh, they didn't take the pill the next year, and then they got pregnant. And so, yes, yeah, stress is a huge deal, and you hear about that all the time where somebody adopts. And, and I even interviewed a couple that did adopt and then and also got pregnant. So it does happen. Stress is huge. What do you think about the, the technology and how this is pushing the age limits? And I'm thinking mm-hmm. I just got a book a couple of weeks ago and wasn't able to set up an interview with the author, but her mother was 60 I think, and gave birth mm-hmm. to the daughter's child through, you know, there was an yes. egg donor and all this stuff. And mm-hmm. so you have a 60-year-old woman giving birth. For her daughter. She's probably not. I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to do, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, like a kidney transplant. I mean, something you say, wow, what a what a tremendous sacrifice. But mm-hmm. a, a 60-year-old woman is not built for giving mm-hmm. giving birth, right? is I, she? You know, I, I would say, well, you know, if you're in shape and, you know, you're— 
You're physically fit? Why not? Um, you know, should 60-year-old women have babies? I mean, it's the same as men. I mean, when that kid's 20, you're going to be 80. So you have to think right. about that. And so you really needed to know, you know, is, is IVF for you? Is fertility treatment for you? Is adoption for you? Those are things you have to discuss with yourself, your parents, your partner, whoever, you know, to make sure that you're you're on board with what you're doing. So. Yeah, well, in this case, it wasn't. she's not exactly the mother. Yes, no, she's not. She's having the baby thing. as she's a sacrifice for her daughter, right. which is a— which is a commendable, you know, altruistic thing to do. I mean, yeah. it's great. All right. So we talked a little bit about the, what's going on with the guys and mm-hmm. what sorts of things they can do preconception-wise. Right. So what do you tell women to, to do? It's it's a, a longer cycle for women, obviously. I mean, yeah. for men, you have about 90 days or so. Right, right. The sperm cycle is uh, they're kind of refreshing each other, refreshing themselves, whatever, All right. uh, in, in about 90 days. But for women, you can have things that happened a couple of years ago that can still be a problem. So how do well, you, how sure. do you tell young young women to well, prepare? Well, I think themselves? you would say um, try not to have uh, premarital sex. You know, <laughs> uh, try not to, uh, or at least not till you want to have. Good luck and, with that. Yeah, <laughs> at least not to, or at least take birth control. You know, uh, and use protection because um, you know a lot of times uh, it's STDs. I mean, people don't think about that. They don't want to talk about sexually transmitted diseases. But if you have a blocked fallopian tube, if you have um, there's other scars, you know, you can have from, from an STD that might cause you not to get pregnant. And if that's the case, then you may have to go the IVF route. Well, the, you know, the STDs is, is huge. I mean, the HPV, that's what they're finding out about that, it just seems to be everywhere. Yeah, it is everywhere. And people don't really think about it because they think, okay, well, you know, everybody has sex and, and we should do it too. And it's all over TV and the movies and that sort of thing. But, yes, you should protect yourself until you're ready to have a baby because you may find that you have a missing piece there. And, and obviously both partners can't have a baby if if the sperm's too slow, the motility or the morphology is off, the, the speed of the sperm or the shape of the sperm. Or if the woman has a STD, you know, she may have a problem as well too. So um, it really, it protects both people. It saves time, money, and energy to actually get checked out. So this is, I don't want to say a, well, it is a revised edition yes. of a previous book, so it, but it's completely updated and everything. So how far, it was eight years ago eight the first one ago. came yeah, out? Yeah, it was in 2005. So what, what's changed for you? What's you changed? You had to go back and, and interview people. There's all yeah, sorts of new stuff. What, what's different? Yeah, lots of things have changed. I mean, we put in a uh, new plan, which is a, like a 12-week plan on how to get pregnant. It talks about Saivita for men. It talks about eating right for men and women. Uh, we talk about, of course, the alternative therapies that we had talked about before, but we updated those. We updated statistics. We changed Chapter 12, which was on Microsort, uh, which was the FDA uh, being approved technology that didn't get approved in the U.S. It's in Cyprus, and it's in, uh, I think, Mexico and some places. But you What have is it? Um, Microsort technology is a gender selection technology, oh. and it helps you decide about gender beforehand. But um, it's not approved by the FDA. So we took that chapter out and we've replaced it with chiropreservation, which is preserving, you know, freezing, freezing your yeah. genetic material like eggs, sperm, embryos, that sort of thing. So That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, why is that not approved by the FDA? The microsort? Yeah. Um, good question. I, I don't know. Dr. Potter was a uh, medical director on microsort as well, so that's a good question. I don't think we really knew that. I mean, we had it in the Chapter 16 as well. Uh, we talked about uh, things to go forward with um, technology as well. But um, that's one of the things that we did think would be approved, but it wasn't. So sometimes the FDA doesn't approve every drug, and that's just one of them, or every treatment, you know, every every possible technology. They don't approve everything. So, uh, so I imagine you track this a little bit, though. Is it successful? Yes. Are there horrible risks in the places where it is being used? Uh, I don't think so. So I really don't know why it wasn't approved. I mean, 
you know, who knows? I mean, you'd have to ask the FDA about that. I'm talking with Jennifer Hannon, who's the co-author of What to Do When You Can't Get Pregnant. Her co-author is Daniel Potter. And the subtitle of the book, let me do this, just start that again. What to Do When You Can't Get Pregnant, The Complete Guide to All the Options for Couples Facing Fertility Issues. And it is a, a revised, updated edition. If you have the old one, get this one instead. I'm going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking to Jennifer. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Jennifer Hannon, who's the co-author of What to Do When You Can't Get Pregnant, The Complete Guide to All the Options for Couples Facing Fertility Issues. Jennifer, thanks for sticking around with us. It's been eight years since the first edition of the book came out, right? Lots changed, but I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what is the most dramatic change that you've seen over that time? Or maybe the oddest change? Um, I don't know about oddest. I mean, I would probably say that the most um, progressive thing was PGS, which is pre-implantation genetic screening. PGS is a is a testing. It's not a diagnostic tool, but testing uh, to make sure the chromosomal makeup of your genetic uh, makeup is is actually accurate, and that you're using the best sperm and the best eggs. So I would say PGS is probably the best breakthrough um, in the last eight years. Is that where they can test for all sorts of conditions before implanting the embryo? Yeah, that's like PGD, which is pre-implantation genetic, genetic diagnosis. PGS is pre-implantation genetic screening. Okay. Both are, again, screening tests. They're not diagnostic tests, but they do look at chromosomal makeup to make sure that you're using the best sperm and best egg before IVF. I kind of wonder how those are going to play out over the years because it seems like you, when you do a, a, a CVF, what do you, the chorionic tests or any of the other diagnostic tests during the pregnancy, you're testing for one or two things and you can figure out whether you're going to have it or not. But if you're testing for 500 different conditions, mm -hmm. you're going to find something pretty much. I mean, the odds are pretty you, good. You might. I, I think what you're really trying to do is, is make the uh, pregnancy rate more successful. The, oh, the, the implantation rate. Right. I mean, once the implantation rate is successful, hopefully your pregnancy is going to go through. So it's it's not going to um, give you a guarantee on pregnancy, but it's going to make sure that you have a better chance of getting pregnant. Okay. Now, how do things like aromatherapy work? Do you have an, an idea how I that mean, works on the body? I mean, aromatherapy, massage therapy, it, we explain it all in the book, so you'll have to buy the book to find out. And you can go to can'tgetpregnant.com yeah. to, to get the book. Well, but you got to give us a little bit of a hint about what's going on physiologically with, yeah, with I mean, the body. Yeah, I mean, it just helps you relax. I mean, aromatherapy, massage therapy, reflexology, we list all of those complementary therapies in our book, and we talk about them in detail. So any reader that picks up the book will be able to find out by reading that chapter. What do you think of this whole thing in California? Jerry Brown, our governor, recently signed this piece of legislation uh, essentially saying that you can have three parents. And I, or more than two parents, anyway. So you can. you're kind I mean, of counting with the genetic, yeah. the donor of eggs or donor of sperm. Sure. What do you think that does to the, to families? It changes families. I mean, you know, obviously, but there's all kinds of families, and I think, um, you know, we have a chapter that says sometimes it takes four, sometimes it's you and the doctor, and it could be a surrogate or it could be two donors. It could be a sperm and an egg donor. So sometimes it may be more than one person, you know, involved in in your uh, planning of your new child, and and I think. Um, you know, you have to look and figure out if you want to adopt or you want to go a route like surrogacy, egg donation, sperm donation, that right, sort of thing. Right, right. 
I want to come back to that in just a sec, but before that, I want to get back to something you said a few minutes ago about the effect on relationships and the blame game and that sort of stuff. What do you guys suggest for families, couples to do to maintain some sort of level of sanity without blaming each other when they're going through a very, very stressful and expensive time probably? Well, we have a chapter on that, too, and we talk about relationship meltdowns and what you can do to surprise your spouse, to uh, take your spouse out for a, a lunch or dinner or some kind of event where they don't know about it and surprise them. I mean, you can do all kinds of things, but the, the thing to remember is not to blame each other because it doesn't fix the issue. Well, that's okay. So the, if, if you're going to do it equal-handed, right? right? So you got you don't know yet who's, yes. whose fault it is. Right. Pr- fault and is probably the wrong yeah. word, but... Yeah. You know, how do you, so say that you have figured it out, the doctors figured out, okay, it's you, Mrs. or you, Mr., that would just up the ante for the, the blaming, wouldn't it? It would. So I think the thing is to remember that, um, you know what, if, if our body fails in some way, it's really not, it's not something we can help. All we can do is go forward. So you have to really think about, okay, do I want to um, go forward with a surrogate? Do I want to go forward with an egg or sperm donor? Do I want to go forward with adoption? And we cover all those those avenues mm-hmm. because parents uh, or parents-to-be need to realize there are options, and this book gives them options. Yeah. When I was working on my, my book on pregnancy and childbirth mm-hmm. for, for men, uh-huh. was kind of had did a lot of interviews with people, and there was a point kind of around here where – Switching from getting pregnant the normal way or even even uh, artificial insemination using your own sperm, of course, changing from that to a donor egg or donor sperm, there's a sense that a lot of people have of failure. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Of, I mean, how do you get over that one? The failure? I think you have to realize that, you know, we, um, we as humans tend to blame ourselves a lot and we tend to blame other people. And, and we have to realize that... Um, you know, if you want to fix this, the, you have to think about solutions instead of uh, blaming, because blaming right. doesn't really work. Well, not not even blaming, but just saying there's, there's something wrong. My genetic material is not going to be used to carry on the family name, mm-hmm. and that just get it's over just, it. It's wrong. <laughs> that, that's your. I think <laughs> you got to get over it. Yeah, because yeah. I think that if you want to be a parent, you want to be a parent. I don't think you really care if if they look like you or they don't look like you, or you know, they could look like. Um, <laughs> let's just say. Uh, I'm trying to think of somebody, uh, <laughs> Kim Jong Young, you, you know, Ayul or whatever. <laughs> I, guess, I guess it doesn't matter. You know, I guess the point is, you know, y- it could look like anybody, but if you want to be a parent, you want to be a parent. So you got to get over it. Well, I guess you, you need to figure out why you want to be a parent. Right. Or you want to be a parent just so you can have some kid to boss around, or right. you want to be a parent. You want a for, slave. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's what they will tell you after a few years. The only reason you had me was against. Yeah, yeah right. to be a slave. Yeah. Yeah. So. so are there parents, or not parents, are there couples that you found who just just wasn't going to work? Nothing was going to work for them. Surrogacy, mm-hmm. just nothing. They just No, I haven't found that, but I did n- tell you, um, or at least, you know, when I was interviewing uh, in the beginning, uh, this was back in like 2003, before the book was published, uh, when I started interviewing people, um, I did always wonder which couple will be first to divorce, right? And two of the couples I know for a fact have divorced. And uh, one had oh. adopted and went through IVF, and one had just gone through IVF and then had a, a child naturally later. Um, but so, you know, what it says to me is that there is a divorce rate in our country, and it's going to happen no matter what. And so, you know, either you can be part of the part of the um, you know the solution to try to figure out ways to make your marriage work or not. A kid's not always going to do it, and so you have to really know each other and have to be on the same page. Mm-hmm. How involved did you, to the couples that you were you mm-hmm. were talking to, how involved did they get their families in this whole thing? Or did they keep the, um, the 
process the artificial reproductive technology or and anything that isn't just sort of normal. Mm -hmm. Did they keep that from their families? Yeah, most actually discussed it, and I did find one family that um, the the parents, uh, I think it was the husband's parents, thought that it was like the work of the devil, you know, like if you're going to use IVF, oh my gosh, you know, that's like outside the norm and it's not religiously correct. And um, that couple had to say, you know what, this is what we want to do, and this is our life, and, and we're living our life, not yours, so, like, get over it. And and sure enough, they finally did, I think they did get, get over it. But if they don't, then you have to be able to say, okay, well, they just don't understand, and you have to go forward with your life. But you well, you found that most of the, fa the families were supportive, Most were. Speaking. I mean, there are always a few that aren't, and if that's the case, it may be just something that they fear. And, you know, if they fear it and, and they think it's religiously incorrect, then maybe they won't be agreeable to that. But um, but I think most of the time, I would say probably 95, 98% of the time, most people understand. There's just a few that, that may not, and, and maybe they will in the future. So we hope so. So where do you think we're going? Uh, Technology-wise, I mean, are, is is there anywhere to go from here? You can there pick is. the sex. You can you can have a baby that's going to be completely free of any sort of chromosomal issues. Mm -hmm. Are we going to now start kind of the brave new world sort of thing where you're going to pick particular traits that you want? I'd like a really weightlifter kind of a, a mm -hmm. son or a tall willowy daughter, you know, whatever. Yeah. I think you can, but it doesn't always work, and w we've seen that, so we know. But um, I don't think we need to worry about cloning. I don't think that's ever going to, to be the case. I think that um, that's really sci-fi, and that's where it belongs. Uh, I think You don't think somebody's going to try it? I think somebody might try it, but I think we have too many regulations in this world to, to actually keep that from, you know, like clones uh, ruling the world. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so what we do in the Chapter 16 is we talk about uh, what's probable, what's possible, you know, what potentially could happen, what could not and we look at both sides and we say you know this is what the experts say about it and this is what the public thinks about it and so we kind of go back and forth to let people know there's two sides to every every discussion and and you have to look at both it always concerns me when I can understand that there's regulations mm -hmm. but it comes down to an ethical issue and right. the, the researcher or the mm -hmm. clinicians ethics I mean mm -hmm. do you do this or do you not do that right and you can't legislate ethics that's the problem yeah and and there's always gonna be ethic uh, ethical and a moral side and, and a religious side to everything and a medical side and a scientific side so there's pretty much like five or six sides to every yeah. issue even though we talk about left right and center there's really more than that Jennifer Hannon is the co-author with Daniel Potter of What to Do When You Can't Get Pregnant, The Complete Guide to All the Options for Couples Facing Fertility Issues. Jennifer, thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.